So we are in a series called Living Waters Foundations, and as we are stepping into a new season together as a church and as a community, we felt like God put it on our heart. We felt like it was important that we would take a few weeks and, oh, middle schoolers, hey, middle schoolers, go get them. Be nice to Andy. Don't be hard on him. Hey, uh... A time to go over the foundations of who we are as a family and as a church. I don't know what happened to this row of chairs, but I don't know, I don't know if I can preach with this. For those of you that think I just sit in here and tweak the chairs all the time, the, look, at this, look at this whole section. If you would look at your neighbors directly. All right, so I'll try to, I just won't look over in this, this direction. Um, kidding. We're, <laughs> we're going into foundations, and so this morning... This is Mother's Day, and so what we felt like lined up so perfectly was an opportunity for us to speak about women and women's role in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> women's role in God's kingdom. For those of you that were like, yes, amen, you have gonna, you're going to have a fun time this morning in this message. So my personal story... My personal story is marked by powerful women who loved Jesus, and they were fighters. My mom and my grandma especially, they were such a, an integral part of my story, and growing up, I remember my grandma, she was the church secretary for years and years and years of the church I grew up in, and I look back at it now and as this spiritual giant. I'm like, she should have actually been pastoring the church, but it was a model of ministry that, the, that, that only allowed for a certain place for women to end up, and so instead of pastoring that community, she all she could do was pastor from a place of a, as a church secretary, and she pastored and led that community powerfully. And so, that's my life, and it's marked. And but but growing up in that religious environment that was somewhat or absolutely oppressive to to women, it, it marked my my journey. Women couldn't lead or speak; they could only be involved in support type ministries or secondary roles. They weren't allowed to teach unless it was on the mission field or to children, which never made sense to me, that women could go into the furthest and most dangerous places and establish the gospel and plant churches, but they couldn't stand in a pulpit and teach a church full of, a room full of men, God forbid, or that they could teach children and raise them up in the ways of Christ, but they couldn't stand on a, in a pulpit and teach a church. Doesn't make sense to me, but this is the way that it was, and they couldn't be on the stage unless they adhered to a certain dress code and when I got married, I knew that I wanted someone strong like my mom and my grandma, but I wanted more, and we wanted more. And so as Kate and I moved forward in our story, the question became, became how do we do ministry together to the point that we are now co-leading this church called Living Waters, and it's such an honor for us to do this together side by side. And there's been pushback, there's been confusion there's been dismissal of our ministry because we actively chose for Kate to function in equality. She isn't a pastor's wife, she's the pastor. And you guys know, we tease and we joke, I bristle when people call me Pastor Ryan. It's mostly kidding, but it is annoying. Um, <laughs> but where I really bristle, inside mostly, is when someone calls Kate the pastor's wife. Because what we have done so hard is to build a model and, and, and to function in a way of 
of equality as co-leaders in this house and as pastors together. She isn't a pastor's wife. She's the pastor of this church. In fact, she's a better, going by the Americanized definition of pastoring, which is okay in this setting, I mean in this context, she's a better pastor than I am, without a doubt. (laughs) And listen, it's not just a title that she has. She gets paid for what she does equal to me. It's not pay one and get the second person for free, which so often happens in different and various ministries. We literally co-lead this church together equally. So this concept may be foreign to some. They've seen female pastors, but maybe in, in certain denominations that are a little different than ours, but not in a church like this one. And so we stand emphatically and passionately on the truth of God's word. We are not ignoring scripture. We're not changing it to fit what we need. We're not throwing down the cultural card that says, oh, well, that scripture meant that at the time, but it's cultural and we're not in that culture anymore, so we don't have to follow it. That's not how we arrived here. We arrived here through a very diligent study and understanding of God's word that would lead us by his spirit into into all truth and that we would function in that. And so that's what we are doing. It saddens me that this is a controversial statement, but we believe that scripture clearly and coherently teaches equality between men and women in God's kingdom, in church, in family, and in marriage. This is the foundation. This is the foundation of who we are that we wanna look at today as our foundational series of Living Waters because And I'm not here to throw stones, but we have to understand why would God give us that emphasis here in this valley? The reason is, is that in this valley and regionally, this is definitely not the viewpoint or the case with many, many and the majority of churches. And so there's a lot of churches out there and we're not here to to throw stones and we're not here to say we are better. We haven't figured out, but we do emphatically have to know this is who we are. This is the, this is how we interpret scripture. And this is where we will stand in this area because there needs to be a better representation in the valley of this particular viewpoint for people to hear. And I believe to be healed from what they've experienced in church and in church history. And many churches have, many churches have women in different leadership roles and strategic strategically placed so that you can see them visually. But when you ask them who is on your board of elders, it's all men. Who is your pastoral team, your pastoral leadership team? It's all men. Who is overseeing the finances of the church? It's all men. Why? Because that's the doctrine that they believe. It's the tools they've been given and they're building a church with those particular tools. Well, thank God that we have a little bit different tool set here that has been given to us by our denomination and by Garris and Jan. And over the years we have experienced together and over the last few years of Kate and I leading this church, so many people coming and hearing a, a different message that I believe is being healed, that is healing people and setting them free to be all that God has called them to be. We believe that women share equally in God's image, that are equal recipients of Christ, that are equal recipients of God's spirit poured out, that are equal inheritors of God's kingdom, that Jesus inaugurated and equal participants in the new covenant. And so depending on your background, what I say today may mess with you a little bit. That's not my goal. Well, okay, so it may mess with you a little bit. If you understand or have learned 
scriptures differently than I present them today. I would love your permission to simply engage with you in a, an opportunity to show you a different way of understanding scripture and to ask yourselves, what does it look like for women in my life or for me as a woman to be fully alive in Jesus? And I'm honored to speak about women in God's kingdom here and to, to build a church that believes this and stands on this. And so to do that, I wanna tell you guys a story. And this story is a, is a representation of dozens if not hundreds of women that Kate and I have connected with over the years around this topic. We'll call her Susan. Susan's not a real person, but go, go with me here. Susan came to find and follow Jesus. She fell in love with Jesus. She experienced the full acceptance and forgiveness of Jesus and the empowerment of a relationship with Jesus that only by the Spirit of God can speak to a life and call it into spiritual, being born again, being reborn into the purposes that it was designed and created for. And she felt that call to be a dreamer, to be a builder, to be a leader, to be awake and alive, and then somewhere along that journey with Jesus, she met religion. And religion told her, it's okay to have a relationship with Jesus, but you need to know your place. You need to be quiet. You need to be submissive to male authority. You need to honor your husband, the priest of your home. So she quieted her passion. She silenced her dreams. She handed over her unique leadership anointing, and she muted her voice. She ceased, ceased teaching and learning and hearing and proclaiming, and she doubted. God's love and wondered why he saw her as second rate. She felt her heart dying in church and she stopped going or she just went and she stayed in her lane. She experienced the belittling, the spiritual abuse or worse, the objectification, the dismissal and was frowned upon or outright opposed whenever she tried to rise up into her giftings. She was pushed down by what the Bible says and her freedom and joy that she'd initially found in Jesus was lost and eventually Though, thank God, she heard a different message about her role in God's heart, in God's kingdom, and in God's church. And she began to heal and hope and find her unique voice. She started to believe that she had a place and that she had a purpose. And it wasn't just submitting to male leadership. Eventually, hearing that different message, she became alive. And I love the story of Esther, and I think it's ironic that Esther is so often the, the, the story or the scripture that is used in, in a lot of, well, I shouldn't generalize, never mind. I, I, I'm sure that you use a lot of different scriptures and stories, but when it comes time to like preach to the ladies or do a women's conference, who, where should we speak from? Maybe Ruth or Esther? And I think it's ironic because this is such a powerful story, this, this reality of Esther. Esther 4.14 is so often the verse that we quote, and you've heard it before, and it says this, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This story of Esther is about a woman, and she's realizing and she's rising into her authority as a queen. And I believe that just as it was with Esther, that her recognizing her authority and choosing to cast off fear placed by expectation or societal norms changed the course of history. And I believe that in this house are Esthers, are those, those queens in God's kingdom that are rising into identity, not as secondary players in God's kingdom or his story, but necessary for his kingdom and for his gospel to advance. This is where we are. Romans 8, 19 says this. 
All creation waits for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. All creation waits that God's sons and daughters would be revealed. Acts 2 says, in the last days, I, in the last days, as we talked about new covenant people believing that that last day's statement is much more about <clears throat> the ending of the old covenant, but he's in that time frame of the, the ending of that old covenant. The promise, the prophetic promise was this. I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will all prophesy. They will all proclaim the good news of God. That's where we are as his spirit was poured out, and that is where we exist still today, that his spirit has been poured out on all flesh, sons and daughters. So right now you're either saying, come on, preach, or you're sitting there going, what? How can you teach this? When the Bible clearly states that women are secondary to men, even to the point where the New Testament says that they must be silent in the church. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Although Jesus came and modeled inclusion by affirming women as co-heirs of God's grace, unfortunately, the church throughout history hasn't followed Jesus' example. In the beginning, at the very beginning of, the, of Scripture, there's a story, and God says this, let us create humans, let us create mankind in our image, male and female, he created them. The beginning was this revelation that male and female together is the best and the fullest reflection of God's image that we have. You may have heard that Eve was created as a helpmeet or a helpmate in Genesis 2.18, and therefore women are inferior or destined to serve their husbands. I don't know how to combat that scripture, so let's go on. Um, I'm kidding. That, that word helpmeet comes from two Hebrew words. I want you to understand what they are. Helper is the first word. When it says help, it's saying helper. And this word is used throughout scripture to describe God. When God comes to help you, are you looking at God and saying, thank you, my inferior servant, for coming to help me? No, when you need help, you call out to God because he can provide for something that you do not have yourself. And so that scripture is saying that he, it is a helper just in in the same way that we would call out to God for help. And the second word is an adjective and it means equal or having the same nature. You may have heard that Eve was created as a help meet, but the truth is, is that women were created not to, that the woman was not created to serve Adam, but to rule alongside Adam as a powerful, capable ally to accomplish the God-given goal of fulfilling and subduing and nurturing the earth ruling over the earth. You may have heard, you may have heard that God made Adam the man before he made Eve. Being made first, chronologically speaking, is a clear indication of authority, or that is how it is often taught. But the creation order of living things on earth, according to Genesis account, proceeds as following. Aquatic life, birds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, Mankind, male, and then female. That's Genesis 1, 20 through 27, the creation story in Genesis. In, the, in this order of creation, animal life is made before humanity. 
if chronology equals rank, human beings should be subject to the animals. If, on the other hand, we assume that humanity should have dominion over the animals because we were created last, (laughs) and therefore the pinnacle of God's creation, the woman would be God's crowning achievement and should have dominion over all. The truth is, the teaching that chronological order of creation equals rank is not an idea that can be found in the Bible. It is merely a human assumption. You may have heard that Eve is guilty of eating the fruit, and therefore females should be blamed or shamed and avoided as the temptress that they are because it's all their fault. And nobody probably teaches it quite that directly, but if you listen to messages very much at all or read so much of the pop Christian stuff that's out there, you get this insinuation very, very clearly. But the truth is this. In Genesis 3, 6, you can look it up. Adam was right there beside her. And then people would argue then that possibly that the fall happened then because Adam shouldn't have let Eve usurp his authority. That's what happened. And the truth is, is that he was never chastised for anything other than disobeying God. Genesis 3.12, God didn't come to him and say, Adam, why did you give up your authority? The only thing that Adam confessed was, I ate the fruit. He took full responsibility for it. Why are we passing the buck to someone else? And you may have heard that we are still under the curse of the fall. The story of Genesis, the story of creation, and then the story of how sin entered into the cosmos. We have this reality of the fall And what took place because of it was that there was curses laid out. But listen, sometimes when we're imagining or reading or remembering that story, we get the curse way too large. The only two things that were cursed was the serpent and the ground. Everything else in the list in Genesis were consequences. Woman's consequence was severe pain in childbirth and a desire for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is the first mention of authority in Scripture in that way, and it was not in design of God. It was the result of sin. Man's consequences were painful toil to bring food from the land, sweat and labor until you return to the dust. The truth is, While we still experience the consequences of the fall, the curses are broken. Jesus broke every curse. Through Jesus, we are reconciled to God. We are restored to a pre-fall condition with God and with one another as humanity. And we will talk more about what that looks like as one new humanity, as Hebrews talks about in a couple weeks when we continue our foundation journey. But now... For right now, understand this, that in his restoration of breaking every curse, we stand before Jesus. We stand before God, holy and blameless. Ephesians 1, 4 tells us, and we can walk right up to God whenever we need. Hebrews four sixteen. we are invited to come to him spiritually whenever we need grace or mercy. So there's more than 100 passages in the Bible that affirm women in the role of leadership and fewer than half a dozen that appear to be in opposition, and yet those few misinterpreted and misapplied have become a foundation for so much church doctrine that disqualifies women from leadership, ministry, equality in marriage, and it stifles women's ability to pour out your unique gifts that God has given to you. 
We see women with Jesus. Luke speaks of women who, accomp who accompanied Jesus during his ministry, Luke 8, 1 through 3. He wrote, Luke wrote that women traveled with Jesus and listen, and provided for him out of their own resources. How many men are laboring under a lie of provision when Jesus was able to do what God had called him to do and that there were women who were providing for him out of, his, out of their own resources? Like Matthew and Mark, Luke identified three of the women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, wife of Chuzza, and Susanna. But he adds in verse three that there were many other women in this group. Jesus had, listen to me, Jesus had women among his disciples. Acts 1.15 expresses this clearly. And a woman was the first one entrusted with the news of the incarnation and the birth of Jesus, Mary in Luke 1. A woman was the first recipient of a miracle. Jesus performed a miracle on behalf of his mother and for a bride and a groom at the wedding in Cana. A woman was the first Samaritan convert, if you remember the woman at the well. A woman was the first Gentile convert, the Canaanite woman who, who argued with Jesus about letting scraps fall to the ground. The first to hear of the resurrection teaching was, was Martha, Lazarus' sister, when Jesus met her outside the tomb and talked to her about the coming resurrection. That was a woman who was the first to receive that. The first one to perceive the cross was Mary of Bethany. Sorry, Martha of Bethany was the last one. Mary of Bethany was the one who broke open the perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet in preparation for his death and his burial. She, she had revelation of the cross. The first witness to the resurrection and the first one to carry the message of the resurrection was a woman, Mary Magdalene. Jesus was a radical liberator and he was setting all of this up to unfold more and more and more as we realized the upside down kingdom that he had inaugurated. But what about Paul? No contextual study of Paul's words about women in Timothy, Corinthians, or Ephesians is complete without first, look. I believe, looking at Romans 16, the end of his letter to the Romans. In Romans 16, in this chapter, at the end of his letter, Paul points out many women by name Without hesitation, this speaks volumes about the level of their character and leadership in the early church. By examining Romans 16, we can see that Paul was very much in favor of women in ministry. Phoebe, a deaconess. Priscilla, who taught Apollos in, in Ephesus. Mary, Junia, who was outstanding among the apostles. Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, and other women who worked very hard for the Lord. And also for context on Paul, who wrote so much of our New Testament and that people pull some of the, the messages out of Paul's letters to do great harm to women and to their equality and their place in the kingdom. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. So maybe if we can find a female prophet or a female apostle, we would be on to something, right? Female prophets. There are four women listed as prophets in the Bible. Three in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Miriam in Exodus 15, Deborah in Judges 4, Huldah in 2 Kings, and Anna in Luke 2, if you remember, it's the story of Jesus. From, from those four examples, we can see that God had no problem having a woman as a prophet. And the church is built on what? The foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. Female apostles, 
He says in Romans 16, as I mentioned before, greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. There is no zero scholarly rebuttal to the fact that Junia was a first century female name and that she was a woman. Declared outstanding among the apostles. This is a clear example of a female apostle in the New Testament. In fact, she and her husband are both listed together. That's, so this is good news. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are not saying that we are diminishing the difference between male and female, but what we are doing is understanding that God is saying, I see you and I love you and I will use you. I see you and I love you and I will use you. That is what we are talking about in the gospel and in Christ. It is that he is pouring himself out equally on all of us to be used by him, to be loved by him and to be known by him. There are several things this scriptural reality shifts. But what about, as I mentioned earlier, earlier, the provider in the home? There's no biblical teaching that man must be the provider in the home. Forgive me if I go too quickly through these. There's teachings that I've put together on these and, and we have them recorded and you can, you, uh, I did five parts on this a couple years ago and so you're getting five parts in one morning. So enjoy, happy Mother's Day. There's no biblical teaching that man must be a provider in the home. First Timothy 5, 8, if that springs to mind, it isn't saying what you think it says, and we can walk through it contextually if you would like to. In fact, I did that on some other teachings. It's important that we understand that, that men aren't to labor, labor under that and that women are not to also have that expectation. It doesn't mean that we can just kick our feet back either, fellas. Priest of the home. There's no biblical teaching that the husband must be the priest of the home. You can search your concordance. Scripture never describes men as priests of the home. Anything, anywhere that says or comes up, that is a man-made doctrine. We have one priest, it is Jesus Christ, whose blood atoned for our sins. It's a mockery to the gospel to try to suggest that any human being needs to be placed between you and God. The Bible says that all believers, in fact, are priests. 1 Peter 2, 9, Revelation 1, 6. There is no gender restriction. My belief is that men and women, husbands and wives included, are to go directly to Jesus. They are not first to go through any person, not a spouse, not a parent, not a mentor, or even a religious leader. There is a place for religious leaders. There is a place for wisdom. There is a place for study to show yourself approved. There is a place for biblical study and teaching, but it is to be a, a source of wisdom and guidance and direction and discipleship. It is not to be an intermediary for you in your relationship with God. That is Christ alone. So... If that's the case, then also, women, I have to challenge you to stop offloading to your husband what you have a burning in your heart for your family, your kids, or your home. Women shouldn't work outside the home. This has been taught. There's no biblical teaching that a wife must not work outside the home. Titus 2.5, uh, a letter on how to raise up elders. Women are admonished to take care of their home. Scholars agree that this simply means that married women aren't to to forsake their own children. It doesn't mean that you should only be working in the home. A woman must obediently submit to their husband in all situations. There is no biblical teaching that a wife must obediently submit to her husband. Ephesians 5.21 does say that we must submit. It just says that it is mutual. 
that we would submit one to another. Also, nowhere in Scripture does it teach or imply that women should, be, should submit to all, all men in general. Scripture never tell the husband to make sure that his wife is in submission. It is the wife's instructions. The command to the husband is to selflessly and sacrificially love and care for his wife. Ephesians 5, 25, 28, 33, Colossians 3, 19. Submit, by the way, is, is used in Scripture as a Greek military term to arrange a troop division in a military fashion under the command of a leader. Or sorry, it was used that way in New Testament times, but in scriptural use, it's a non-military use. And it means this, a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden together. That is what biblical submission is. This is not a military instruction book. This is how we are to function together as the body of Christ, how we're to function together in marriage. You may have heard that a man needs to cover a woman in her ministry activities. The, this idea came from a, a distorted interpretation of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11.3. The head of a woman is a man. It's a New King James Version translation. The word is actually source, and it means headwaters. And in context, it's talking about Adam and Eve not establishing a universal hierarchy. In this passage, Paul is not placing men in a position of generic rulership over women. Women can pray and worship and study the Bible or minister without a man present or covering them. How silly to think that a man, because of his gender, could add credibility to prayer or spirit-empowered ministry or to the gifts that God has poured out on an individual. But man is the head over women. Myth number one, male headship in the church. The Bible never teaches that there is male headship in the church. The Bible does talk about headship in the church. You know who is in that position? Jesus, you're right. According to the Bible, Jesus and Jesus alone is the head of the church. Men are not given that spot. In fact, to insist on male headship in the church would be to place men in the spot of Christ, and obviously that verges on heresy. Yeah, and no, yep, that is heresy. Christians can, can stop. Christian women can stop offloading the spiritual responsibility onto their husbands, as I said earlier. But husbands, we have to be able to say, what is my spiritual responsibility in the home and in the marriage to be fully alive? Just as Jesus is the head of the church to pour himself out, how am I coming fully alive and pouring myself out for my marriage and for my kids and for my family or for this place if I find myself wherever it may be? Myth number two, headship means leadership. Do you know that the Bible never says that husband is to lead the wife? People who teach this are actually giving their own interpretation of scripture that talk about headship of the husband. They are assuming that the Greek word for head means leader because when we say the head of something in our culture, it means the leader or the, the boss of that. But the best interpreter of scripture is scripture. So if you wanna know what this word head or headship looks like in application, we have to return to the context of scripture, at which point I become a firm advocate for male headship. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So Christ's headship in relation to the church is mentioned five 
times in the New Testament. Colossians, Colossians, Ephesians, Ephesians, Ephesians show you how Christ's headship of the church is described as giving abundant life to her, helping her flourish, preserving her, loving her, causing her to grow, and giving his life for her, dying for her. So if that is what headship is, and we can go by the scriptural interpretation and not our cultural interpretation of headship, then yes, absolutely, men, let's be more of the headship of our marriage or our home or our single life of where we find ourselves and say, I am giving abundant life to those around me. I am helping people flourish. I am preserving. I am loving and causing her to grow, and I am giving myself. I am laying down my life for my wife. Oh, but, but, but Ryan, why do you think that women can be deacons and elders in our house and, and on our leadership council and, 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 and Kate can be a co-leader, co co-pastor of the church? Paul writes a whole book, Titus, about raising up elders. It's the full instruction of women as well as men. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you might set in order, he says, what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so this letter, he writes these instructions that said, men, if you are to be an elder, you have to do this thing and 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 this thing. And it doesn't include women at all. And so people read that instruction of eldership in the church and say, well, he starts out and he says all these things about women, men and there's no women in here. And you go, yeah, but the whole next passage is about women. And before he launches into the instructions of women elders, he says, likewise, you women. So what he's saying is all of this pertains to you, but let me give you a few more instructions that are specific to you in how you would become or live as an elder of a church, on a, a local church that Paul would have planted. Everyone tracking along so far? Okay, so you're thinking now, yeah, great. You, you picked all the low-hanging fruit. What about women must be silent in the church or I don't permit women to preach? Okay, let's do this. Second Timothy, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, Paul writes. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So here's some points I will make on this, and I will dive into it a little bit, but I do have access for you to longer and much more in-depth teachings on this particular passage and on the next one that we're going to we're going to look at. So when you're studying scripture, context is king. The context of this is a personal letter between Paul and Timothy, who he was discipling into church leadership. And they were addressing, Paul was addressing a very specific issue, which was not women teaching. It was people teaching false doctrine. Okay. That's the first thing that we need to understand. Is this a universal principle that Paul is laying out in a personal letter between he and Timothy? Yes, if we're dealing with false teaching, shut it down, don't allow it to be taught in the church. We are not playing, as I said earlier, the cultural game where we're just going, oh, that scripture doesn't apply. We have to understand the context so that we can understand what's going on in this. 
in a, in a city known for the temple of the goddess Artemis and the elevation of mother God and woman as the superior and as the authority, Paul is teaching Timothy how to deal with this false teaching that is, that is rooted in a false God temple that is coming into the church and that there are certain leaders of that sect who have come into the church but are now in their place of authority who are usurping the authority or interrupting the meeting and are teaching false truths about God, and they're teaching false truths about Scripture. And the way that they would dress was described in 1 Timothy 2.8, and they would perform rituals in this, in this temple to Artemis. They would perform rituals emasculating men in worship and elevating the female form. And he says, watch out for those that are teaching these endless genealogies. This would refer to the teaching that Eve was the liberator that they had and that God was the oppressor or the lying God who, who she set humanity free from when she ate the fruit. So they're saying Eve was a liberator and that, that, this is, that God was the evil one in the story and this is the false doctrine that's being taught. And Paul is saying, I do not permit, I would not permit this woman to teach these false doctrines in your church. Artemis was the goddess of fertility and the protector during childbirth. So for those that were leaving that religion, they would have had fear put on them that they would not have the protection of Artemis, their god, during and through childbirth. And so in that misinterpretation of that scripture, the misunderstanding of that scripture in the King James Version, the New King James Version, that says women will be saved through childbirth. I mean, if, if we're gonna be extremely literal, then we need to start teaching that that the only way that your pathway, women, to salvation is that it would be through childbirth. That's not what we teach at all. It's no church, uh, I can't say no church. Most churches don't believe this at all, but they do believe that women are second rate because of this passage of scripture. But what Paul is actually saying is that because of your relationship with Jesus, because of the birth of Jesus, you will be preserved, you will be saved. And during that childbirth where you're gonna have those lies being put on you that it's not safe or that, you, that Artemis is gonna be an issue, that God is going to preserve you as you walk this out. His word for authority is different than every other use that he uses in the New Testament, it means to aggressively usurp the meeting. It wasn't that the women, the woman was teaching, it was how that Paul was shutting down. And understand this, that to learn in quietness and full submission is a gift for women in that culture. It wasn't bestowed on them in other places in that society, especially Jewish culture. So the submission that he is asking for within the context wasn't an attitude or a posture or an expectation that was only on women. It was a submission to the gospel message that was being preached. It is exactly what would have been expected of every male in the room as well. And it is exactly what is expected of each one of us who have said yes to coming into relationship with Jesus, that we would submit our life to the lordship and the teachings of Jesus. So, if we take this passage out of scripture and take it to mean that women shouldn't be active or preaching or using their voice or their gifts in a church or in a community or in a society, we are contradicting Paul, we are contradicting Jesus, and we are contradicting scripture as a whole. But we have bias, and sometimes there has been bias even in our interpretation process. Why are men so quick over the centuries to take this scripture at face value and apply it? Why are we so aggressively applying the surround, why aren't we as aggressively surrounding, applying the surrounding verses at face value? That would be no dressing up and that women's salvation would literally come through bearing children. 
1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 40, says this. This is the second passage that's often misused. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of the Lord's people. Women, verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached, Paul says. If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone is ignorant of this, they will themselves remain ignorant. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So in the verses preceding, he says women shouldn't prophesy or speak, but then in verse 39, and actually earlier in chapter 11, he encourages everyone that they would be eager to prophesy and that would do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Paul is out of left field. It would appear that in the distance of one paragraph, he would say, you can't do any of this, oh, you should all be desiring to prophesy and to do these things. So here's what I want you to do to understand, to help this passage of scripture and really to help all of First and Second Corinthians make more sense as you're studying it. Corinthians is a response letter. There's four letters. It is them writing to Paul and Paul writing back. The return letter is First Corinthians. A third letter goes, the second Corinthians that we have is the fourth letter. It's the second response letter from Paul. There are quotes from their letter to Paul that he is responding to, 42 of them in First and Second Corinthians. If we don't understand that, then we're going to read through Corinthians as if it's one complete run of thought as, instead of understanding that there is questions being asked and that Paul is responding to those statements or those questions, and he's quoting them and then responding to them and quoting them and responding to them. Paul was an expert in the law. Oh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 7, 1. He says this, now concerning the things which you wrote to me about. We understand that he is in a dialogue with them. Number two, Paul was an expert in the law, and this isn't in the law. He says, this is what it says, Romans, Romans, or 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. Paul, an expert in the law, knows that this is not, in fact, anywhere in the law. And so why are they saying this is what the, why would Paul say this is what the law says as an expert in the law, understanding and knowing that that's not, in fact, what the law says? It was, though, in the Talmud, which is that collection of, of extra um, lessons, beliefs, and teachings that the religious leaders had written up and had created over the years. And so in that passage, there is this. It says this, out of respect to the congregation, a woman should not herself read in the law. It is a shame for a woman to let her voice be heard among the men. The voice of a woman is filthy nakedness. What was taking place is that people were being brought out of this religious environment into relationship with Jesus, but they were coming and bringing their teachings into this new church, into these churches, these, ba these beautiful communities gathered around Jesus, and they were pulling their old old beliefs and their old systems and saying, Paul, isn't it true that women shouldn't be speaking in the church? Isn't it true? Because the Talmud says this, shouldn't we be following that? 
Paul would never appeal to the old covenant to justify Christian practices. We also have to understand that. That is what he fought about in every single one of his letters. And Paul uses, in this passage of scripture, he uses a literary device. It's called a rhetorical eta. And it's a little H in the Greek. You can see it if you look it up in the original language. But it's really what it actually is, is an expletive of disassociation from the previous thought. There wasn't um, the, the, the usual commas and, and things in the, in, the, in the writing. And so they were using these words to, break, to create breaks in the dialogue. And so this expletive of disassociation from the previous thought can be interpreted as or, or it actually means nonsense or absolutely not. So Paul in this passage of scripture that has been used to keep women, women oppressed is in fact setting them free and he is rebuking these leaders who have written this letter for their false belief. The Holy Spirit did absolutely inspire Paul to include this quotation for the purpose of rebuking them and their words. Paul's rebuke begins in verse 34. As in all churches, the saints, churches of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to rebuke, they are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want you to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for women to speak in the church. I'm sorry, I misspoke. Paul's rebuke starts in verse 36, where this little mark is. Nonsense. Did the word of God originate with you? Nonsense. Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that I, what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone is ignorant of this, they themselves will remain in ignorance. Therefore, he says, he goes on to say, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not, be, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Don't forbid it. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. He was responding to something that they were believing that was from the Talmud taken out of context and was being applied to the early church reality. Listen, I hope that's, I know that's a lot. I hope it's helpful. As I said earlier, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> There's enough reasons that people disqualify themselves from stepping fully into serving the Lord with everything that they have and everything that they are. As a community, let's not add something else like the belief that women are inferior or created to serve or aren't able to lead to anyone's path. It's a false teaching, it's a false doctrine, and I believe that it brings much delight to our enemy when half of God's appointed all people would either disqualify themselves or allow themselves to be disqualified from any of the roles within God's kingdom. Can you guys just, let's all close our eyes for just a minute. I would love to have the worship team come back up, but we are a little short on time. So we're just gonna, I'm just gonna take a couple minutes and pray for us this morning. I do want to invite you as always to remember that um, this is not just a linear journey that we're on, that you guys are welcome to as we wrap up this time this morning, that this room will remain open to you if you would like to receive prayer or communion to take some time you can do that obviously the the kids classes are out and so you do need to go get your kids but we want there to be some space in here and we'll, we'll turn on music and if you want to visit with people or talk with people you can 
You can go do that in the lobby, but let's hold this space just for ongoing connection for people with, with the Spirit of God. Um, and also this morning, as it is Mother's Day, I want, uh, actually, I had you close your eyes. So um, keep your eyes closed for just a second. Then I'm gonna have you open them for just a moment. Um, Ronnie, who is a trusted um, heart of prayer in this house, came to me during worship and just had an emphatic desire on her heart to make a space to pray for women who are carrying shame or grief around the area of motherhood. That as you stepped into motherhood at some point in your life, that that motherhood didn't result in a life or if it did result in a life that you have, you have dealt with shame of feeling inferior as a mother or that you have made mistakes as a mother or that you ended a life or whatever it may be and that God wants to meet you and love you and restore you and let you know that you are seen and that you are valued and that you wouldn't walk out of this place carrying shame. And so as a response to that word, if that's you or if God has been talking with you about that this morning, um, we would love to, after we have this, as we release, that you would have some space to just come to Ronnie and she would love to pray with you. So if you guys do want to open your eyes now, Ronnie's right over here. Can you raise your hand just so they see you? She's gonna hang, she's gonna hang out in here and would just love to pray with you. You don't, even have to, you don't even have to say like, oh, this is my story or this is, this is what happened. You can just come and she would love to just speak God's heart over you. So a couple things that I want to address with this last couple minutes that we have are these lies that we're believing. One is that the feminine is secondary to the masculine. If we teach and believe that God created male to lead to go first is more important and that women are created as subservient or submissive to the male in culture, in our home, or in the church, what we're doing is we're taking women's power, their dreams, their strengths, and we're marginalizing them all. We take strength from women and we tell them that it's God's word or we tell them that it's God's design. And we allocate such a small amount of authority to women in these cultures and in these, these church communities that instead of fighting for what God has for them, they end up fighting each other for a tiny piece of the pie. And that is not at all what we wanna create. We want women, we want men who champion each other and champion women. We want women who champion each other and are not fighting over a piece of a pie. But when we say masculine is better, feminine is secondary, and you only get this much place to have a voice, that place of voice is gonna be given to just a few people and it's gonna create animosity instead of co uh, collaboration and community. And so we want to say we are sorry. And I wanna say as a pastor and as a male leader, I am sorry for anyone who has ever opposed you or raised an eyebrow at you or stepped in your way as you have risen up into the authority and the calling that God has had in your life or has said, oh, that's a Jezebel spirit or whatever it is, these funny things that we cast around to make women feel inferior or as if they should be hesitant to step out into their full calling and the full purpose that God has on their life. And if that's you, I just say, I'm sorry. Sorry that your power and your gift, that your femininity has ever been diminished or removed or that you have ever felt uncertain to step out into the light of what God's asking you to do. That is not God's heart for you. To anyone here that has ever felt like your femininity is dangerous or it needs to be suppressed, or the church that you grew up in or that whatever it is has taught you that your value, your beauty, your grace, your sexuality is dangerous. After all, you don't wanna make men stumble. <laughs> As if we were created to be the spiritual leaders on earth and we can't handle it if you're wearing a shirt that shows a little too much. 
It's our responsibility, not yours. But you have been taught that your beauty and your power and your authority and even your sexuality is something to be ashamed of or to guard or to hide. Listen, men have to steward our own desires, our own thoughts, our own attractions, and our own eyeballs. If your femininity has attracted pain, has attracted violence or violation, and you feel like you've had to reject it, or you feel that to be strong and bold and beautiful is prideful, and you've learned to diminish it so that you won't stand out, or you've somehow learned not to value yourself or to invest in yourself or to allow others or your community or God, your Father, to pour into you. I ask your forgiveness. We do not believe the lie that your feminine power, your authority, your beauty is to be diminished. You are not to stay in line. You are to break the line. You are not secondary, and your femininity, femininity is not dangerous. These are lies that we break off of you this morning that would keep you from living fully alive. And in any way that I can stand in any place of authority or opportunity to just say, I'm sorry. We need every one of us to be safe, to be seen, to be valued, to be loved, to not be objectified, to not be diminished, to not be dismissed, to not use false doctrine and doctrine that, that I believe originates in the opposite place from God's heart to any longer rest on you or restrict you and rob you. Every woman is qualified and called and equipped to carry the truth and the power of God's love and the message of reconciliation through Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone that they encounter. You are empowered and equipped to live fully alive. You are empowered and equipped to create and to celebrate beauty. You are empowered and equipped to celebrate your intellect and your ability to teach and to understand, not only in the church, but in every area you find yourself in community. And we will stand behind you and we will celebrate you. We will stand beside you and we will link arms with you. We will go ahead of you where we have to and we will break down these false lies and champion you. I return back to Acts 2.17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, sons and daughters. So Christ himself gave the male and female apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That passage of scripture, I believe with all of my heart in reaching the full measure only takes place not in an outpouring of the Spirit, but in a rising up of men and women into those places. That is what the fullness of the body of Christ will look like. 
The question that we're gonna ask here in our community that we call Living Waters, when evaluating someone for leadership in this local church setting is not is it a man or is it a woman, but what has God gifted this person to do? And I hope with all of my heart that today begins or continues a shift in your life, in your ministry, and in your marriages, in your single journey, in your friendships, and in your community. But I believe that Living Waters is going to be a healthier community when everyone steps into the full functioning of their calling and in their gift. The story of Jesus goes out when we are all empowered to proclaim it, not just with our voices, but with the way that we live and shine and exist and show up in the places that God has put us. There are no limits when we walk in our God-given identity with humility and obedience to scripture and obedience to God's voice. And I think that many of you are already living this way, speaking to women. I think a lot of you are already living this way, but I believe that as you've lived this way, you've probably felt like these certain scriptures are in judgment over you and you're like, I'm just ignoring them. I'm gonna do this because it feels right. I just wanna release you from that. You're not doing something wrong. You're actually walking out the fullness of scripture. You're getting it right. And so I release off of you that feeling of being a rebel or walking in opposition to the scripture when in reality, from the very beginning of this story and the demonstration of Jesus and the full understanding of Paul's instructions, you wouldn't have any scriptures that would limit you from being fully alive in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Awesome. We love you guys. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day. Have a great Sunday.